Well, good evening. It is a pleasure to be back with you in what I'm affectionately calling now Shrek time. It's that Shrek time of the day. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, verse 3. Now, I've noticed that our speakers are on a roll at the minute with this communal confession of sin that Dr. Joan was talking about uh, just last night. Dr. Yarbrough confessed what I'm calling his tic-tac tantrum, right, with his church credit card and the gumball machine. And then uh, Dr. Bailey upped it a little bit. He went with two, his uh, enticing his neighbor to cuss for him, which <laughs> I thought was quite creative, and his sort of road rage provocateur uh, stunt. I, I like that. Dr. Jones himself has to confess publicly. He lied to you last night. He told you about my looks. He told you about my preaching, and he told you about my accent. And so I would like him to publicly confess his sin before you. Listen, Barry, if you're here, we're just trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? <laughs> so, you know, you got a nice positive phrase. Guess one I got? Murphy's Law. <laughs> Anything that could go wrong will go wrong. Yeah. So here's my confession for this evening. Uh, I specifically chose to speak tonight because it's offering night. And I'm under the impression I get 30% of whatever we pick. Is, that, is it 30, 20%? 20% it is. No, I'm kidding. So tonight we continue our series on God's fidelity, God's faithfulness. And uh, Dr. Bailey set us up a few nights ago by, by looking at the attribute itself, right? By reminding us of the faithfulness of our God. Uh, and Dr. Jones last night took it into a specific area in which he's faithful, in, in forgiving us our sins. That beautiful imagery that he, he, he left us with of showering, right? after you're dirty or, or filled and covered in mud and, and be able to take this shower and get clean. Every time you shower this week, think about that and praise God in the bathtub that he has covered your sins with his righteousness. Beautiful. Tonight, I want to talk to you about God's fidelity in protecting us from the evil one. I know, I mean, gee, we bring this Irish guy in and he's not going to talk about Satan. That's who the evil one is. But while it's a serious and, and, and a difficult topic to address, it's an important one to look at. So look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is the verse that we're using to launch this topic from. Verse 3, it says this, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you, and he will protect you, from the evil one. The word there to protect is to guard you, specifically to guard you from being snatched, kidnapped by the evil one. It's a heavy topic, uh, especially in, in a setting like this. But it's a heavily appropriate topic in a setting like this, because even though the birds chirp and, and the trees speak of God's grandeur and, and evoke awe, we've got to remember that we live in an era in history where Satan's still at work. That this age, the church age, that God's doing something through this new humanity, the church, at, at a time when Satan still rules. He has been restrained, 
he has been defeated, but he's, he's still knocking about, and he's still trying to destroy everything that God wants to do through you, through the church. This is essentially hostile territory. Dr. Bailey mentioned that this morning for a little portion of his message. This is danger zone, despite the beauty despite the location of where Mount Hermon is situated. So my goal tonight is to be quite selective and, and certainly a little bit systematic in this heavy topic and help you uh, understand a little bit more about your adversary, Satan. Two weeks ago, I enjoyed the 30th year celebration of Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. Anybody... I confess, confession time, anybody watch any of the shows on Shark Week? We've got a few. Okay, you're my favorite people. You get an A tonight. Shark Week, I was glued to it. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, just show after show, I didn't watch them all. Uh, I have other things to do. Uh, where, they, where they explored uh, just sharks in general, and each show had a shark expert, a shark biologist they call them, a, a survivalist expert. And each show kind of did something very different, but at the same time, very similar. They took people and they threw them into the sea where there's sharks. And this particular one that stood out was an NFL uh, player, a tight end, I forget his name. And they, they sort of kitted him out and uh, they were putting him into the water and he was not going to be inside a cage, a protective cage. And so, of course, they needed to give him some, some advice, and, and they did, and, and, and I want to pass that on to you, just in case tomorrow you happen to be uh, silly enough to get into the waters of Santa Cruz, which I'm told may have some sharks around. The first little piece of advice from the expert was this, when you get to the bottom of the seabed, which is only 20 feet down, stand firm. <laughs> Make yourself big. Now, this, this is a big guy anyway, but make yourself big. Don't show any fear and don't move. And what you're going to see is that the sharks are going to start to circle around you. Just in, in some sort of order. And they're going to be reading you. They're going to be assessing you. They're going to be waiting for your distraction. And they're going to be making sure that they know whether they need to go in or just stay away for a little bit. So, so stand firm. The second thing is they handed him what looked like a cattle prod, right? Like a four-foot stick, essentially, some equipment. And they said, use your equipment. If a shark comes close, don't stick out your hand to fend it off. Use this pole. And what the shark's going to do is if it, it feels the, the, the pole poking it, it will redirect its, its course away from you. So stand firm, uh, use the equipment, the tool that we've given you. Third one, this is my favorite. Uh, they laughed, I laughed when I heard it. The third one is, don't act like shark food. <laughs> like, don't act like shark food. And, and after your man giggled, he, he, he then said, well, what, what, what would it look like to act like shark food? I mean, what, what is it I'm not supposed to do? And it, it's, it means don't panic, don't fret. Don't make big, sudden movements. Sharks have pretty poor eyesight, but they have a great sense of smell. And they also have some sort of uh, device in, in their 
nose essentially that can track electrical pulses in the water, like movements, and they'll, they'll gravitate toward that. Stand firm, use the equipment, don't act like shark food. And lastly, they give them a, a canister and they say, let off the scent canister if you're in real danger. And this scent canister contains some product that permeates the water and a shark can smell it and they leave. They don't like it. I'd be thinking, let's let that off first, right? <laughs> but th they want the sharks in. They want good footage. It was fascinating to watch. And, and they referred to, to the shark as the apex predator in that environment. Complete top of the food chain. That's, that's the shark's abode. He rules. He's like the lion in the jungle. It's the shark in the sea. Apex predator. And as I watched it, I thought, this is an extremely helpful illustration. Absolutely. Peter refers to the evil one, Satan, as a, as a lion. John refers to him as a serpent and a dragon. Paul uh, refers to him as a serpent, uh, piggybacking off of Genesis 3, of course, as well in his writings. But I think if Paul was knocking about today, he'd be quite happy with using the analogy of a shark. Satan is a shark, apex predator of human beings. In his environment, he is smart, he is strategic, he is attractive. A shark has this kind of hypnotic appeal to it. There's, there's not turtle week every year. I mean, there's shark week for a reason. We're kind of drawn in. No offense to turtles and turtle lovers. But a shark's destructive, merciless, waits to ambush, stealth-like, absolutely brutal. Apex human predator, I think Paul would be very, very happy with that, that imagery, that analogy. So tonight, in light of the fact that our verse into the topic is in Paul's letter, I'd like to get us into Paul's mind. That's where I'm being selective. Let's look at what Paul says about the evil one. And so in trying to organize this in some sort of way that you could follow me, I thought I'd do it this way. We're going to look at Paul's world, the first century world, and, and what their perspective was on, on evil and the demonic. We're going to then look at Paul's words, his particular letters, and what he says. And I'm going to be selective even there, because he says quite a lot. And then I'm going to show you a little bit of uh, Paul's walk with God. His walk as a believer, and, and how he perceived satanic involvement in his affairs. So Paul's world, uh, Paul's words, and Paul's walk. So let's look at Paul's world. How did the first century world view the supernatural? It's quite a mixed bag. The first century world is a very religious era, extremely religious. The, the default non-Christian worldview is that the natural realm is puppeteered from on high, from the supernatural, by, by the gods or by whatever pantheon of gods your people or your people group have. And that those gods are fickle, and they're impulsive, and they're often kind of semi-human, which means they're very, very moody. Good times, bad times, and they are to be worshipped out of fear. 
You have to fear the gods. You've got to appease the gods because they, they affect your life. They puppeteer your existence. Uh, that's why they had so many temples and so many idols and so many holy spaces uh, and, and even spell books and magic books. Uh, and you can, you can read some of the ones that someone has dug up for us from that era. Secular, you know, non-Christian spell books that, that were to guide people on how to manipulate the gods or a god, which of course is a facade for the demonic to, to get what you want. Some of them are extremely funny if it wasn't so sad. You know, you've got to go out and find bat's eyes. That's one I read. Where are we going to find bat's eyes? And you know, the ones that sort of hang at the very top of the cave. Who's going to get bat's eyes? And you're going to mix them with this magic herb so that you can break up the relationship between a couple because you, you, you want her or you want him. They're dead spells for everything. The, the point that I'm making is that they were wrong in the facts, but they were right, they were correct in the reality that the supernatural is engaging with the natural in an open system, not a closed system. We see examples of this even in, in, in the New Testament. If you turn to Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus and he's preaching and teaching and proclaiming uh, and people are coming to Christ. And look what verse 19 says. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls uh, together and burned them publicly and when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely, widely and grew in power. Ephesus was known essentially as the, as the academic and economic hub of the dark uh, arts of magic. And of course, Paul preaches the gospel. People come to Christ uh, and they want to get rid of that sort of stuff. And when you calculate the equivalent of what they burnt in books that day, it's about three to four million dollars today. That's quite a bonfire. And you're easily tempted to say, you know, I'm just going to sell this on eBay. You know, just get rid of it and make myself a few bucks. But they don't, they burn it. They understand the danger of it all. In Acts 9, you don't have to turn there. Sorry, Acts 8, you don't need to turn there. You have Philip engaging with, remember, Simon the magician, Simon Magus, who's, who's so impressed with what's going on through, through Philip's ministry that he's trying to buy a piece of that action. How can you manipulate the way you manipulate? I want a piece of that. It's It's, it's everywhere. So they had the wrong facts, but they were right in terms of the reality of it. Now, that's in the non-Christian, non-Jewish world. In the Christian, and of course, in light of the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish world, there was, there was also the teaching, but, but in this case, it was they had the right facts, right, and the right, correct reality. The supernatural does influence the natural. Uh, but here's how, and so you have about seven or eight books in the Old Testament that, that make quite a lot of contributions to understanding about Satan. Uh, Genesis, First Chronicles, Job, some Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, they all help us understand, give us a little bit of a portrait of, of, of the shark, 
of the apex human predator. Uh, again, jot some of these down. We're not going to be able to, to go there tonight, but it is heavy. Study them at home. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are two central passages in the Old Testament that, that help us here. And while they're immediately directed to some historic kings that are there, uh, many of us, I and many others, believe that it goes beyond them to speak of the one who's pup puppeteering their lives. And so in, in Ezekiel 28 and, and Isaiah 14, you'll, you'll read that Satan is not eternal, that he is created. That's huge. That means that he has limited power. He's extremely powerful, but, but it's limited. He's created. He's not eternal. It, you'll read that he's high-ranking, that he is attractive, and that he is very powerful. In fact, he's so powerful and attractive and high-ranking that the archangel Michael would not dispute with him over the body of Moses, according to Jude 9. Well, you'll also read that he's arrogant and ambitious. Let me read you, don't go there, but I'll read to you in, in Isaiah 14, verse 12, uh, and on to, four, uh, to 14. There are five very well-known I wills. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star. That's, that's where we get Lucifer from. Son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, Here's the five I wills. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Saphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high God. The exact same appeal that he then tempts Eve and Adam with. Being like God. Eventually, maybe replacing God. It's his strategy all along. He's tactical, and he's intelligent, and he is sneaky, and he is a master of spin. A master of spin. But he's accountable to God, according to Job 1 and 2. He's created and so he's accountable. Uh, Job 1 and 2 gives us a massive insight into, into what God is doing beginning to end at a, at a macro meta-narrative level, right? Uh, in the mystery of God's sovereignty, he has chosen to permit Satan to operate temporarily and restrictively. The very name Satan means adversary, opponent, an opponent of you. The very name devil means slanderer. Uh, the name, another name that is known by is Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. And of course, the word that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, evil one. Evil one. So Paul's world is a mixed bag opinion on how the supernatural is engaged with the natural realm. And, and, and that shark thrives in the confusion. He thrives in, 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 this, in this mixed bag opinion. My, my, my point in, in looking at Paul's world is to get you to understand that Satan is involved in daily life. Daily life. 
not theoretically, not abstractly, actively involved in daily life. What about Paul's words? Let's move on to that. Paul says a lot. Uh, he comes at this from different angles. Uh, and, uh, you know, it reminds me, there's a, there's a wonderful story of this CEO of a very well-known and successful company. And he, he pulled into this gas station and it was a real rundown gas station. And there was just like one little tiny store and one gas pump and, and one man just manning the gas pump. And so he pulled in, he got out of the car, he told the guy, fill her up and I'm going into the store to get something. And he did. And when he came out, he, he noticed that his wife had the window down and she was giggling and flirting with the uh, gas station attendant. And he said nothing. He thought to himself, well, you know what? I'm the CEO of a big company. I'm pretty confident in myself. So she so got into the car and they drove on. As they were driving, um, as conversation flowed, it emerged that she had dated that guy in high school quite seriously. <laughs> so of course, this was starting to throw him for a loop. And he was like, well, you know, well, he thought about it for a while. And then he said to her, you know, honey, just think about it. Uh, had you not married a successful CEO like myself, today you'd be the wife of a gas pump attendant. And you're pressed. And after a little while, she responded, oh, honey, you're so far wrong. Had I married him, he would be the CEO, and you'd be manning that gas pump. <laughs> There's a different angle on the same event, and... I love that because Paul, you know what I think? Paul is one of my favorite, and of course he is. He's written so much, but, but Paul opens our eyes to the correct angle on, on lots of what's there in the Scriptures, certainly at a, at a master flow of history level. We're going to see a little bit of that in a few moments, but, but just in some of the details. And again, jot these references down. 2 Corinthians 11.4. Well, Paul essentially, of course, takes the Hebrew understanding that is factual and real uh, and, and works with that. In 2 Corinthians 11.4, he says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So Satan is a person, not a personification of evil, which is what some believe, that Satan's not really a person, not, has no personality, doesn't have a will, doesn't have a, a heart or affections, doesn't have a plan. It's just a nice way of talking about bad things. No, no, Satan is a person, Satan himself, and he's one who is a master of uh, pretending, masking, disguising himself so that you do not see who he is. And he does it as a son, as an angel of light. He, he, he is a good-looking pretender. He's attractive. 2 Corinthians 11.3, jot that one down. Uh, Paul says that, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your, may, your minds may somehow be led astray. He, he goes back to Genesis 3 to basically remind uh, his listeners that, that Satan is deceptive and sneaky, which means he's extremely strategic and intelligent, but he is deceptive. In 2 Corinthians 6.15, he just calls him Belial, which means wickedness. 
And in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, as we've read, he calls him the evil one. Despite his good looks, despite his attraction. He also tells us in Ephesians 2.2 that he activates a fallen humanity to function in rebellion to God. That he wants believers to be conformed to a fallen society. He gets a kick when believers live like the world. It puts a smile on his face. But the, the, the angle I love most from Paul is what he does, again, as I said, at the master level. He, he elevates our vision to see it not just a, a, a sort of a daily involvement in, 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 in our lives, but a cosmic struggle. So my favorite book in the Bible, if you really, really push me and don't, is the book of Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians for that very reason, because Paul really does lift our vision and shows us what God is doing in many ways, beginning to end, and he interprets a lot of God's activities in the past, but focuses on this age. So the book of Ephesians is fantastic, and and, and what we see there is is a a bunch of discouraged believers, and, and if you get into their heads, you can understand why. They are a church that have been planted by Paul. They've come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ isn't here, and, and they live in a society that seems to be thriving and flourishing in evil. And God's number one representative is imprisoned. Paul's in prison or under house arrest. And so that, when you look at it from the, from the, the realm of just the natural realm, it seems like Jesus is losing And so they're a little bit discouraged. And and Paul writes to them to say, no, don't don't be discouraged about my situation. God's doing something here. In fact, this is part of his plan. And he tells us a little bit about the mystery of the gospel. And he tells us a little bit about how blessed we are from the spiritual realms right down here. But he also opens up that whole cosmic struggle um, teaching. And of course, that's where I want to go. Look at Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Very, very clear here that that Satan rules and that he is exercising his rule in a very organized way on planet Earth, activating the sin of the lives of those who are disobedient, which was you at one point, which was me at one point. My point is that that he rules. Don't forget that. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is a very organized, strategic administration of his rule on planet Earth, in the era in which we live, despite the beautiful sound of the birds chirping and the awe that's evoked from the trees. Don't forget that. 
He rules, and while he's defeated at the cross, he hasn't been removed yet. He's still working, restrictively, of course. All to get you to my favorite verse in the Bible, chapter 3, verse 10. Let me pick up from verse 7, just so you get the flow. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And here it is, verse 10. His intent, that's God's intent, was that now in this era, through the church, the new man, the new humanity that he talks about in chapter two, the manifold wisdom of God or the majesty of God or the glory of God should be made known, and look to who? to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That that language of of rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, which I also read in chapter 2 a few moments ago and in chapter 6, speaks not just of the angelic realm, but particularly the fallen angelic realm. And what, what Paul is saying here is that through you and through me, God is displaying his greatness to those who chose to rebel against his glory in history past. Look at the God you rebelled against. You and I are walking advertisements of God. That's going to put a shiver into your spine, right? That's that's, 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 That's frightening. That God gets to show himself off through the church, through you and I. And he's doing it to Satan and his hosts. They've been defeated, but they haven't been removed. And every time a person comes to Jesus Christ and surrenders their life to Jesus Christ, God smiles, God shows off righteously. And Satan is disgusted by it. That's why he's out to destroy you. That's why he's out to destroy me and what we're trying to do for Christ. It's a wonderful little verse that exposes some of the grand storylines of Scripture. So Paul's world, Satan is active daily in daily life. Paul's words, Satan is active in a cosmic level, influencing planet Earth. And we don't get to spectate. We don't get to spectate. We are the targets. The battleground is not just land, the battleground is people. That creature then, like nothing else in creation can reflect the glory of God, is the very creature that can also most emphatically mar the glory of God. So the battleground is, is you, the battleground is me, it's, it's every life. We don't get the spectate, we're targets. So that's Paul's world, that's Paul's words. Let's look at Paul's walk. Uh, There's a couple of 
passages in there that I want to very quickly take you to. Uh, let me tell you, globally in the book we're in, 2 Thessalonians, Paul deals with a couple of issues that are going on in the church, but, but one of the things he also lays out there is God's eschatological program to some extent. He talks about the man of lawlessness, right? That's to come. He talks about how Satan is involved in what is still to be because it's a cosmic struggle. He also talks about lazy Christians, right? And that's, again, should make you sweat a little bit. Don't be a lazy Christian. But he takes us local as well. Turn to Acts 17. Fascinating little incident in Acts 17. Uh, let me read you. Well, I'll read you the first nine verses, and then I'll say a few comments on it. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. That's Paul and his crew, uh, where they... Where, they, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So now we're in, the, in the, the city where the letter to Second Thessalonians was written to. This is before the church was planted. This is a church being planted. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, and they formed a mob, and they started a riot, and they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men uh, have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one who's called Jesus. And when they heard this, that's the local government heard this, uh, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So this is the planting of the little church in Thessalonica. And it, it, it's quite chaotic, right? There's, there's a bit of an upset that's going on there as it relates to the local government. Look at what Paul says concerning this in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. I, again, I'll read it to you. You can jot the reference down. He says to this group, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did want to come again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Paul saw Satan behind the local government's bond issue with Jason that blocked the opportunity for Paul to return to Thessalonica. That's how he interpreted it. I mean, from a human plane, you could just see it as local government making decisions. From Paul's perspective, this was satanic. Satan was behind this. He, he's involved globally, but he's also involved in local affairs. And he's also involved personally in Paul's life. First, or 2 Corinthians 12. Jot this down. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 and on. I'll read it to you. Here's what Paul says. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to torment me. A messenger of Satan himself to torment me. He's just talked about high point in his ministry life and walk, this kind of paradise elevation that he had. And, and that's now a, a, a reason for God allowing Satan to send him a thorn in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. He pleads with God, remove this from me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. God's protection here wouldn't be my choice of protection. When, when, I, when we read 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, that the Lord's going to protect us because he's faithful from the evil one, I assume that would mean no struggle, no suffering, no thorn in the flesh. That's not the case. God's protecting him, but it doesn't mean that he's going to protect him in the way Paul had asked him to. Uh, if you go back a chapter in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 11, you look at Paul's ministry CV. If you pick up at some point verse 23, you're going to read about Paul's numerous imprisonments for the gospel, lots of floggings, lots of exposure to death, five times 40 lashes minus one he endured. That's brutal. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned to apparent death. He was shipwrecked at least three times. On one of those occasions, he was on open waters all day and all night. So it's good he hadn't watched Shark Week. That, that would really add another level to that, that, that activity. I mean, he endured bandits. He endured hunger. He endured thirst. Uh, and then that, that's, he nearly ends that little section by saying, and that's nothing like the weight of carrying the concerns of the church. Paul believed that God would protect him from the evil one, but that did not mean that he was immune from difficulty and suffering. See, because Paul's thinking cosmically. Paul's thinking of, of history beginning to end, not my historical moment, not the decade in which I live, not the generation in which I live, but that God's going to protect me from the evil one in the sense that I am his and I can't be snatched away. And then, of course, that beautiful passage back to my favorite book in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 6. Turn there very, very quickly because the kids need picked up soon. Ephesians chapter 6, where we have the armor of God laid out for us, right? And I want to use that really as my closing applicational thoughts for you tonight. Four applicational thoughts. Four, let me be very specific, pieces of advice from a survivalist expert, the Apostle Paul, in his dealings with Satan. The first one is what? Stand firm. Verses 13 and 14, stand firm. What he means is be disciplined in the way that you stand, right? Let me read it to you. Uh, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, and then stand firm, then with the belt of truth, etc., etc., etc. 
the satanic shark expert, understands that God's protection for you in this day and age in which you live involves you. You must stand firm. He's looking at the Roman soldier that he's kind of chained to, right? And he's looking at him going, just like this guy does for his Caesar, I think you should all do that for your king. Stand firm. Discipline. Determination. I, uh, it, it speaks of being prepared. I was reading about Alexander McLaren, who's a pastor preacher from yesteryear in my part of the world. It's beautiful, a little story about how he used to spend about 60 hours a week preparing one sermon. That's 60 hours a week preparing one sermon because he understood the, 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 the importance of communicating the word of God to the people of God, but that he spent those 60 hours of a week preparing that sermon with his hiking boots on or his work boots on, not his slippers. I'm ready. I'm ready to go at this. Stand firm. Number two, second piece of advice from our spiritual warfare expert, the Apostle Paul, is trust the equipment. Trust the equipment. That's what's going to help you fend off that shark. It's, it's the full armor of God, right? It's not just the partial armor of God. It's, it's the full armor of God. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God. Look at verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God. Then verses 14 and on, he starts to open that up, the belt of truth, right? It's, it's knowing truth, and truth is under assault, friends. Truth is under assault. You have to know truth. You have to get into the word of God and become an expert in the word of God. He has said a lot. And there's lots of things that he has said that he just doesn't want you to know. He wants the world to know. And there's too many Christians who, who are like, I, I don't know. Go and ask my pastor. It's just not acceptable. The belt of truth is something you have to wear. Uh, know truth and, and, and know how to live out God's truth. Knowing truth isn't just like mental. It's, it's life. What else does he say? With breastplate of righteousness in place. Right? You have to wear the breastplate of righteousness, right? It, it really wants you to tease that out. It's about upright living. It's about living well. It's a life of integrity. It's a, it's a righteousness that is expressed. You have a righteous standing before God, but you also live out that righteous standing in, in your day-to-day -day affairs. He talks about the footwear of the gospel of peace, right? that you have a message and that you deliver it. And it's a message that in Ephesians, the message of peace is that man can be reconciled with man if man is reconciled with God. That's chapter two of Ephesians. Wear the right footwear. This is not flip-flops. This is, this is military boots that this soldier would have been. Shield of faith, right? Standing secure in one's faith. You deflect all those little fiery darts that the devil wants to throw at you. And then the helmet of salvation, this confidence in God's victory. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Knowing what God says in His Word, it's repeated. It's, it's, it's beautiful. So stand firm, trust the equipment, number three, don't act like shark food. 
that really is caught a little bit inside that breastplate of righteousness, that righteous living. Paul doesn't open that up here in Ephesians, but everything from chapter 4, 5, and 6 up until this point has been walk this way, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way. Now it's time to stand. Paul's all about how you live your life uh, and not being this kind of panicked, frenzied Christian. Then you could, you could add into that the concept of, of the smell of your life, right? I mean, one of the things that sharks have is this, this tremendous sense of smell where they can smell food. And Satan can sniff sin in your life, and he's all over that. This is why Dr. Jones's message yesterday night was so relevant. You can't, you can't hide sin. You've got to step into the light. And fourthly, of course, use the scent canister that repels. What's that? It's prayer. Look how, how, how verse 18 continues. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And then he continues to say, and pray for me, that God would give me the boldness and the words to say. Pray, 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 pray. Paul knew that a Roman soldier stood there, and that while he was armored, he also had to be mentally prepared. And he probably was invoking his gods, please get me out of this. Please protect me in this. Paul takes that and says, hey, it's all about a canister of prayer. The devil is repelled by your prayers. I mean, he's gone. It's a shark repellent. Which is exactly actually the context of the little passage that we started from. I only read you 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. But look what verses 1 to 3 says. As for, the, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from Wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. The context here that Paul is saying God's protection comes to you through against the evil one is prayer. You stand firm. You use the equipment. You make sure you don't act like shark food and you pray. You pray, you pray, you pray. I'd love to tell you a hundred million stories of a chap that was in the church I pastored called Hector. When Hector prayed in the prayer meeting, I wept. I mean, that was, I should have got credit from DTS for listening to Hector's prayers. I mean, the town shook. It was incredible. This man knew that he was calling God from on high and that he was fighting the work of the devil in the town in which I pastored. It was tremendous. The, the one thing I didn't want to do before I left Newcastle Baptist Church was bury Hector. And I got to bury Hector. Because he was a very old man. He was delighted to go and be with the Lord. But pray. Uh, I love it. I it is time to pick up the kids, and that's my favorite part of our camp at the minute, going up to pick. My little James is down in the childcare down there, and I, we have to go together because I just love seeing his excitement when we come, etc. So without a doubt, every time I say, so what did, you, what did you do? And he'll say something like some activity, and he'll go, I wind. 
You know, they, they might have ra- ran a race. And, you know, kids, that when they're three, they add ED and everything. I wind. Uh, and I said, then what did you do? We singed. And, and then what did you do? He says, we prayed, but I didn't close my eyes. That's what he says. And I don't know if he's just suspicious of the childcare people or whether there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a rebellious streak in him. But, but I laugh because Paul is essentially saying here in Ephesians 6 that, that you've got to pray, but you've got to be alert. You, you, you do. You've got, to be, you've got to be alert. You've got to keep your eyes open. And, and Dr. Pentecost used to do this all the time. I don't know if you picked up on this, Dr. Billy, but Dr. Pentecost always prayed with his eyes open. It was, I loved it because I was taught, no, you have to pray. For it to count, you have to pray with your eyes closed. I grew up in a Christian home. No, you pray with one eye open. Alert. <laughs> so listen, my brothers and sisters, it is in God's interest to protect his children from being snatched away by the evil one. Ephesians 3.10, you're displaying God's majesty. It's in his interest to protect you. But God's protection doesn't mean immunity from trouble. God has a larger plan and vision at play than the decade and the century and the circumstances that you're currently in. And yet God's protection also includes you being involved. Standing firm, using the equipment, making sure you're not shark food, and certainly praying. Because this is dangerous. I mean, it's beautiful. Mount Hermon is in a beautiful spot. But it's danger zone. It's apex human predator zone. But God is greater, and he's faithful, and he's more powerful than the shark. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunities that we get to sit around your word and and study it and and learn and be encouraged to represent you in the world because we want you to look good through our individual lives and through our community lives as well until the Lord Jesus Christ uh, returns. For we ask it in his name, amen.